Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optic Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Brad Littlejohn, and um, we are here doing a doing a podcast on Brad's book, Why Do Protestants Convert? I think this will be an interesting podcast. I think there's been a lot of people, including, including myself, who have been moving um, – <clears throat> A lot of young people have been moving kind of towards Rome, even even into Eastern Orthodoxy, and uh, because of a lot of th- issues that they see within the Protestant Church, within evangelical churches, um, non-denominational churches, and so. I'm very excited to do this podcast. I listened to the one that you did on uh, Truth Truth Unites with Gavin Ortland. I thought that was very interesting. So I was like, I got to get this book and see if I can get this guy on the pod. So before we start talking about the book, do you want to kind of tell people about who you are and, and what you do generally? Yeah, sure. So uh, I am the founder and until very recently, the president of the Davenant Institute, ran that for 10 years. And this book is in many ways, uh, this is published by Davenant Press. We've published over 40 titles um, over the past few years. And it sums up a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of the rationale behind the work of the Davenant Institute, which is to provide uh, provide an answer to uh, to evangelicals that are wrestling with disillusionment about about their Protestant heritage, uh, largely because they're ignorant of that Protestant heritage. So we want we at least want to introduce it to introduce them to what they're um, what they're ostensibly disillusioned about before they <laughs> use it as an excuse to jump ship. So uh, the Davenant Institute is is really engaged in recovering a lot of the resources of classical Protestantism and showing the intellectual. Mm-hmm richness of that tradition. So I've been doing that for a decade. I'm also a fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in DC and do a lot of uh, research and writing. For them. Awesome. Well, I think before we get into the, some of the details of the book, I kind of want to just ask you generally what led you to, re- and you kind of just said, you know, what, what led you to writing a book like this and um, kind of what, what patterns or what things have you seen in the younger generations that maybe has, has led you to, to write this? Yeah. So I think, I'm trying to think when we originally, it came out of a blog series that Chris Castaldo and I did together, but I think was back in um, 2019, probably 2018, mm-hmm. 19. And that, at that time I was teaching at Patrick Henry College in Northern Virginia. And uh, PHC is one of these places that that that's, has this conversionitis phenomenon, as we call it. Uh, Hillsdale is definitely another one. Um, a lot of, a lot of, Colleges that attract really bright uh, young evangelicals fr- uh, that are that are really interested in uh, well, either certainly at at college at those colleges, they can then get exposed to history and to the liberal arts and to the whole this, the, this whole wealth of great books they didn't know about. Um, many of them are interested in going into politics or positions of cultural leadership, and what I found encountered there at Patrick Henry and heard from um, both among some of the students I was teaching and heard from professors about other students in recent years. And then had a number of friends at Hillsdale who were talking about the same thing was just this trend that yet just the, the sort of the, the best and brightest of their students, the cream of the crop were very often and very high, you know, a high percentage of them were converting to Rome during their time uh, at the college or, or shortly afterward. Uh, and it's and then you look around. Uh, this wasn't new on my radar. This had been on my radar for a while, but it was kind of 
I, I had been in, in North Idaho before that, and it's less of a phenomenon there. And there, the converts are more likely to go to Eastern Orthodoxy. We could talk about maybe some of the reasons mm-hmm. for that difference. But, uh, you know, as I also got involved in kind of the conservative political scene in D.C., you see almost everyone there is a former evangelical, <laughs> but now Roman Catholic. It really is quite striking. So I said, you know, what what is what's motivating this? Um, and how much of that is how much of that do we need to be critical of the converts for their motives and how much do we need to be self-critical about the the context in protestant churches that is m- making this seem like the most plausible answer to, the, to these people mm. um and i i certainly we want to distinguish in the book between roman catholicism as a phenomenon and the conversionitis as a phenomenon that is to say uh, you could you could think I don't I don't think this uh, but um, you could think that Roman Catholicism is perfectly fine and there's nothing wrong with it per se and if you if you grew up in that tradition then fantastic uh, and yet still think that there's something wrong with conversionitis right that you can mm-hmm. you can you can do you can pursue a good thing for the wrong reasons right now I actually think I still as a Reformed Protestant I think there are significant problems still with Roman Catholicism yeah. but. Uh, the cradle Catholic who just grew up in that bothers me a lot less. And I know many of those people are, are, are good friends and devout people. That bothers me a lot less than a lot of the converts who are often, I think, converting for particularly unstable or short-sighted reasons. And then the ones that aren't converting for unstable and short-sighted reasons, that's also a concern. Because you have a very smart, sober-minded, mature person that says, Reformed Protestantism isn't good enough. I need to jump ship. Mm-hmm then that should make us as Reformed Protestants concerned, say, what is it that we're doing wrong? Right. So all of those things were kind of going into the, the background of why we wrote mm-hmm. this. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting that you broke it down to these three sections, you kind of the psychological reasons for conversion, the theological reasons for conversion, and then the sociological reasons. And so I kind of want to maybe talk about each of these sections of the book as I was reading, I found... Um, and like, I mean, just for people, for clarity, for people, you, you're kind of just diagnosing here, like, here's why this is happening. You're not necessarily even saying in the book, this is good or this is bad. You're right. Like, that's kind of the tone of the book. I, I want to, I mean, later on, you kind of give your response, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. For the most part, I think each chapter, I think um, we do have a, a kind of brief conclusion where we sort of say, yeah, here's how, here's how we should meet these concerns. Um, mm-hmm. Here's how, here's some answers we might provide. And then we have uh, a concluding chapter and then a, an afterward where we develop mm-hmm. that a little bit more kind of right. uh, how to have a positive vision of, of Protestantism that can withstand these mm-hmm. concerns and objections. But mm-hmm. yes, for the most part, we're simply trying to say, here's what's going on. We don't want to be, you're, you're not trying to be judgmental about it. Uh, some of these are better reasons. Some of these are worse reasons. Uh, but the, we need to start with just understanding. Mm-hmm, for sure. So, I mean, you start with this thing in, in the psychology of conversion, you start with the uh, authority hunger. And in the section, you kind of talk about the younger generation's desire for more structures and, and maybe safer authority. Um, and I, I thought this was amazing. I mean, I'm growing up in the generation where, you know, 55% of, of my generation's parents are divorced. I mean, all the friends I grew up with grew, were in broken homes, you know, very, very messed up stuff. And, um, 
And so I thought this was like the perfect way way to start. But I guess my question would be, what are some of the specific ways in which you see these younger generations are experiencing kind of disordered authority in their lives? Yeah. So in the original draft of this, we actually wrote that section as father hunger. And I think for many, it is very specifically response to the phenomenon of fatherlessness, so many broken homes in modern society. I've known converts who who grew up in broken homes who literally did not have a father in their lives at all. And the appeal of Roman Catholicism was very much related to that. Here is somebody who is a an authority figure whose word uh, has weight, whose word compels obedience, um, who is this kind of stabilizing force uh, in my life that I have otherwise lacked. And I think uh, we shouldn't, I mean, I, uh, there's probably like actual sociological data on this that, that I don't have, but it, well, I, there, I don't know if there is or isn't, but it would be interesting to actually get sociological data on, um, yeah, whether on how much there is in fact a correlation between if you grew up in a broken home and if you grew up in a mm-hmm. fatherless home, you more likely to be drawn to this, but it certainly makes sense. And more generally, I think we could say, even for those who grew up in stable two family homes, there is still a, um, there's still an authority fun- authority hunger in modern American life, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Many of us might've had fathers who weren't particularly um, strong leaders, strong masculine leaders in our homes. We had a father there, but is sort of, may have let himself get pushed around um, or maybe our, our in our household, that was fine. But in the church, our pastors didn't seem to really carry that much weight and authority. They seemed to be people pleasers. They were always chasing the newest fad. They're dressing in skinny jeans and, and trying to be, <laughs> um, you know, trying to be relevant. And they weren't someone who preached the word with authority. Right. Mm. Uh, and so, and then more generally, we're living in a society of rootlessness, a society in which every man does within what is right in his own eyes, in which there doesn't seem to be any agreed upon standard of right and wrong. And the Roman Catholic Church seems to provide that kind of rock of authority and stability and a, a, a conclusive answer to all of these questions that we have. So I think sort of at every level, just from like actual fatherlessness and nuclear family to the kind of just vacuum of authority within Western society as a whole, you see all of that kind of pointing toward um, at least, you know, it can draw people toward the claims of the Roman Catholic Church in a sort of sense of an abstract ideal. To what extent that's actually the case in concrete parish life, you know, I don't know. I hear different things, you know. I think I think there are ways mm-hmm. in which the Roman Catholic priest, who's, you call him father, right, um, and, and he tries to relate to his congregation in that way. I think there are priests that really model that and exude that fatherly authority. Um, and, and part of that is just the, um, the fact that they, the Catholic priest is unmarried. He doesn't have his own family. He is not father to his own children. And so by that means he can be father to the congregation as a whole in a way that, um, I think a Protestant pastor often can't be. 
Mm-hmm. So do you do you view that as I mean you kind of talked about the fatherly aspect of it. You, so are you kind of viewing that as more as a fatherly void than a necessarily a authoritative void? Because I, I mean I've seen both things. I think the the fatherly void is obviously huge. A lot of people are broken up or uh, growing up in broken families, and a lot of people without father figures, or if their fathers are there, they're very they're not technically there. Um, so I, I wonder like. As I think through kind of my problems personally with with um, evangelical churches or non-denominational churches is that there's, you know, the 10 doctrinal statements, but then there's, you know, you, you could talk to 10 different elders at the church and you'll ask them one question and you'll get 10 different answers. And so there's one lack of certainly lack of fatherly authority, but then there's also lack of doctrinal authority. And I wonder, uh, do those two things kind of go hand in hand or would you kind of put those in two different categories? Yeah, I think it, it flows into that. I mean, that, that kind of relates to one of the points that we bring up in the theology section, right. um, where the, the quest for certainty, right? So um, yeah, right, right. that's that desire for epistemic authority that will provide a, a, a final resolution to all of our mm-hmm. questions about doctrine, all of our questions about ethics. How are we supposed to live as faithful Christians in this confusing society? Yeah, as you say, you go, you you get a hundred different answers among a hundred different people, and <laughs> in Protestant churches, and you think, oh well, Rome. Look, we know where to go. Like there's there's magisterium. Now, of course, in mm-hmm. practice, <laughs> you talk to a hundred different Roman Catholics, you'll get a hundred different answers, and right. even you know, not even just at the lay level. You know, the, there are there are famous, there are very liberal Roman Catholic mm-hmm. cardinals, and there are very conservative Roman Catholic cardinals. They're more mm-hmm. liberal than more conservative popes. So the um, mm-hmm. The fact is you're dealing with human beings um, who are finite and fallible and change their minds and, you know, and and struggle to interpret texts and so on. So the reality is it's not clear to me at all that Roman Catholicism actually provides any more certainty or stable base of epistemic authority than you can Mm -hmm. find in a confessional Protestant tradition. Uh, But it's certainly understandable why people think that it might. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we could talk a little bit more about that when we get to the, the-, the theology section. But I think one question that I had as it relates to this authority hunger is, and I guess what what sort of, you kind of just talked about confessional Protestant churches, and that's probably one sort of combat to to the lack of authority that Protestants are seeing, young Protestants are seeing. Um, do you think that's kind of just the main way in which the Protestant church can can uh, maybe combat some of this movement towards Rome in younger people is just subscribing to different confessionals or creating more robust, succinct doctrinal statements? Yeah, well, I think we definitely need to get back in touch with our confessional heritage, this idea that, you know, we're just trying to kind of make it up as we go along. You know, every, every church has got its own, comes with its own statement of faith. Every Christian college, every Christian school, it's like coming up with its own statement of faith mm-hmm. and, you know, either reinventing the wheel, either they're doing it well and they're just, they're, I mean, they're substantively well, but maybe like saying good things, not quite as clearly or precisely as they could, or quite often they're sort mm-hmm. of unwittingly stumbling into heresies that have been dealt with centuries before. Uh, mm-hmm. So having a confessional tradition, means that we are it, it, confession is not infallible but it's far more likely to be truthful and clear mm. than something that was just you know 
cooked up by, you know, a, a few church planting friends yesterday, right? Uh, now that said, I, I don't think, I think we need to be careful about saying confessionalism is the solution because there is a way in which there's a, particularly in this rootless fluid context of modernity that we're in. And there's this, this craving for something solid to cling on to that can breed a kind of confessionalism that is very unhealthy, right? Where someone is is going, mm. looking to the confession. This, they're drawn to, they might be drawn to Reformed Presbyterianism for the same way reason that someone might be drawn to Rome, which is like, oh, look, you know, this is the place where you have all the answers. Mm. The Westminster Confession of Faith has all the answers. They settled it. <laughs> you know, that's, I'm just okay. need to submit my conscience to that. And you're making, what you're doing is you're making an idol out of a human uh, locus of authority there, just as I think Roman Catholicism does. Uh, and, and also what you're doing is you're fooling yourself because the reality is even like the Westminster Confession of Faith is a fairly lengthy confessional document, but it's not like it <laughs> answers everything. There's, you know, there's zillion, you could expand each of those paragraphs into a book, you know, where, in terms of all the different questions that might arise. And cert, and it's also it's just a confession of doctrine. It's not doesn't tell you about anything about ethics or even anything about church polity. This, this always cracks me up. Like most Presbyterians <laughs> don't realize Presbyterianism isn't actually in the Westminster Confession of Faith because it doesn't even actually get to issues of polity, at least not beyond a few general things. So mm -hmm. when we come to the from credenda, what should we believe to agenda? What should we do? Mm -hmm. The confessions aren't going to be that much help to us. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think the response needs to be a a return to confessions, yes, but also cultivating a healthy, healthy humility, a healthy arrest. Um, and this is where I think doctrine justification by faith alone is is so comforting, right? It's um, it's not it's not that it gets us off the hook of doing good works, but it do, it 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 means we don't have to st we don't have to stress about well, did I did I do everything right? You know. Um, you're not going to do everything right, <laughs> but that's okay because your fault, your failing, failing fallen works are accepted as righteous in God's sight for the sake of Christ by faith alone. Right. Right. For sure. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I think, well, and you kind of, then you next, you talk about the holy holiness deficit disorder, which I feel like I have the holiness deficit disorder as I was reading through it. I was like, man, this is, this sounds very much like some of the stuff that I've been thinking through over the past year. Um, and kind of, I guess I've been, as I've been working through my own conversion out of non-denominationalism, I've, I've found comfort in a more, and I don't even know what to call it, just this more sacred service. And it was Anglicanism for me. I, I read J.I. Packer's book, uh, The Heritage of Anglican Theology, about a year ago, which started to help me move the needle towards something that felt, I guess it just felt more sacred in the church service. And I don't know exactly how I should deal with that mentally because there's nothing theologically um, sound about that. Cause there's obviously that the verse in first Corinthians three sixteen that says, uh, do, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? And I think this is the, the classic evangelical argument as, as to like, well then, you know, what is it in the younger generations or in me that is being pulled towards this sacred uh, church service? And I, I so I'm going to ask kind of I'm saying a lot right now, but I I wonder yeah. if it's some sort of materialism. I mean, do, do you see that there's some sort of materialism in that um, in that sort of draw towards this 
towards this more sacred or more holy service. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on there. Um, I mean, the first mm-hmm. thing to say, in part, you're dealing with a timeless human phenomenon. Human beings mm-hmm. want to feel like they're in the presence of something transcendent and mysterious, something bigger than them, something that they can't understand in a way. Um, so the um, a and, and this is so that, that's a, that's a natural human impulse, uh, but and you see that in the way worship functions in every society and every tribe uh, on the face of the earth. Uh, now it can be a corrupt human impulse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can easily go too far because uh, and it, and it does tend to right because then there's a sense of valuing something merely because it's mysterious um, (laughs) and it doesn't actually really communicate any content. Um, And so this is what the reformers were reacting against, right? You had this worship that was very (laughs) mysterious. Like you didn't even understand what the priest was saying, right? (laughs) You're just, just sort of in there. You've got some incense, maybe you got some, some beautiful music and another language and the priest is up there, you Mm. know, muttering away in Latin uh, and you know, you can sort of feel like you have, you have holy feelings, but absolutely no content to that being conveyed, right? Mm-hmm. Where Christianity is a religion of the word. It's a, it's a religion about preaching fundamentally about conveying true, true, a, a true story about what God has done and the meaning of that. Right. And so Protestantism says, whoa, 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 we need to get this. We need to focus our worship on clarity and communication and we need to we need to put it in the in the vernacular languages the focus needs to be on preaching we need to get rid of rituals that people are doing they have no idea why they're doing the thing it just kind of feels cool get rid of all that stuff um and so for the most part it was a a move in a healthy direction but then it can go too far and it tended to in the um some in some places within the reformation itself and certainly in the centuries following where then you get the Enlightenment tries to push this impulse even further. And it says, well, the problem with the Reformation is it didn't reform enough. You know, we still mm-hmm. had these sacraments things and what the heck's going on there. And we yeah. had this doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. So what we need to do is continue the Reformation and get to where we have a purely rational faith, where we're just like, you know, just accessing God just as we would, you know, study Newton's laws of, of, of motion. Right. right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we live downstream of that, of that kind of flattening out, which the enlightenment rationalism was one way of doing it. Um, but there was also a kind of more subjective emotionalist way of doing it, which says we want to make God maximally accessible. So you can, there was an impulse, I think in the 18th and 19th centuries to make God maximally accessible. Right. Mm. And there was one way was to do it maximally accessible to our reason, and then there's another that was maximally accessible to our emotions. And that's what you see particularly in American Protestantism, right, is to say mm. God shouldn't be scary and foreign and other. He should just be totally relatable like your best friend. <laughs> and I think so many people are now growing up in the wake of generations of that where it's like, no, mm. I, like, <laughs> I, I'm glad. I'm, I, it's good having a best friend. But sometimes you need something bigger <laughs> right. um, than that. And I want a God who's actually – too big for me to wrap my mind around and the Mm -hmm. worship that I'm getting is not giving me that. So I think that explains a lot of the draw. And I think, um, 
and I'm sorry, I'm risk going on to here, but I'll just you know, I, I add to that. Even outside of the church, within society as a whole, we live in this sort of mass democratic age where anything that might seem sort of elevated and sacred has been kind of hollowed out, right? I mean, even, yeah. you know, like you a, a graduation ceremony at a university would have used to have a sort of solemnity and ceremony to it mm. that it's not going to have now. And so there's that craving mm. for that. And it's a healthy craving. But again, we got to be careful that we don't go too far back the other direction and we start valuing things just because they're mysterious and they kind of give us the tingles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I, I mean, I think about Jesus, his actual ministry on earth with for the vast majority of those three years, they had no idea what was going on. I mean, he's constantly being like, like, you know, I just healed a bunch of people or I just made the the winds and the, the waves calm down. You guys still can't see what is right in front of you um, in, in a, in a very, in a rational sense. I mean, they, they could not understand what was happening. Um, I don't, and I don't want to draw too much of a connection because I don't, I, I really like, I'm trying to work through this whole dynamic right now. What's the healthy, what is a healthy view of mysticism or, or, or mystery rather than maybe not mysticism, but what's a healthy view of mystery, um, compared to how much do I need to rationally understand about Christ? Um, and it's just a real confusing thing because, yeah, if you grow up in, in evangelicalism, there's there are certain answers to everything. And sometimes they go too far to where like, yeah, you, you can't fully explain rationally what the Trinity is. No matter how hard you try, I don't think you can fully rationally explain it. Um, and so how am I like, I don't know, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but how are you supposed to, I guess, how are you supposed to um I don't know what's the healthy balance. I'm not. I don't know if you have a, have a good answer for that, but um, what what is that balance? Yeah. Well, then that gets back to some things I was saying about certainty, right? That uh, mm. rightly understood, the confessional tradition is a way of setting bounds. Like it's 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 fencing off the the mystery to keep us from trying to penetrate too deeply into it. That's what it's actually. Doing. It's not erasing the mystery. It's protecting the mystery. Um, you know, the, sure. the Chalcedonian definition, you know, that, that, that Christ is, is these two natures without, mm-hmm. without confusion, without mixture, without confusion, without separation, without change. You know, like how on earth is that? How is that possible? Well, we don't know how that's possible. It's just saying it's saying, well, it's not this. Like we could resolve the mystery in this mm-hmm. way. We could say that the two natures um, are, you know, completely separate from each other in two persons. Well, nope, mm. that would resolve the mystery, but that would be wrong. Or we could resolve the mystery by saying they're just fused into each other, into like a, right. a you know, like, a, uh, you know, like a chemical compound, uh, like, mm-hmm. which you take it as, well, that would resolve the mystery, but that would be wrong too, right? So we, we affirm these things, and we know this to be true, and this to be true, and this to be true, but we don't know how they're all true, and that's okay, right? And I think that for me was very freeing when I realized, oh, that's what... <laughs> That's what our confessional tra- tradition is doing. Um, it's it's not trying mm. to give us all the answers. It's it's trying to uh, give us all the things mm. that we need to hold together somehow without mm. necessarily understanding how they hold together. Because how could we? We're dealing with an infinite, mm. and we're finite beings trying to talk about infinite being. By the, like, mm. the only way we could possibly make sense of it is by getting it wrong. You know, so. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. That that makes sense for sure. Um, and I, I want to get into these theolo- the theology of conversion because I thought. I mean, there's a lot of 
stuff here and and your points here i thought were really interesting um you know the first point that you kind of talked about was the quest for certainty and we've talked a little bit about that already um and i kind of wanted to ask if there was a is there any sort of distinction that you would make between maybe a quest for certainty compared to a quest for clarity? And I, I know that I'm not necessarily coming out of a, you know, I'm, I wasn't Presbyterian or I, you know, I, some, I'm not coming out of a confessional Protestant church. And so my context is non-denominational <laughs> lack of clarity anywhere. Um, ha, have you found or have you noticed any sort of distinction between that, between people looking for clarity going to Rome, maybe people looking for, or sorry, people looking for certainty going to Rome, people looking for clarity, maybe going to, towards confessional Protestantism? Yeah, that is a, that's a, a good distinction. Um, haven't really thought about it in those terms, but I think that is, that's an important distinction uh, because I think, uh, yes, that searching for clarity isn't necessarily the same as searching for certainty. A lot of, a lot of, in my life, a lot of doctrinal clarity has taken the form of clearly distinguishing those things that we're supposed to be certain about, fairly small yeah. list, from all the things that we're not <laughs> supposed to be certain about. Um, so you can be fine. You can be fine with uncertainty as long as you're clear what you're supposed to be uncertain about. Right. Um, hmm. so I think, yes, I think that confessional Protestantism, um, cannot uh, appropriately pursued offers us a way of achieving great doctrinal clarity. Uh, what, without, without providing necessarily all the certainty that we want, um, particularly, as I said, we make the distinction between credenda and agenda. Um, the reformers were very, they they said, look, the Rome, on the realm of agenda of things to be done, the Catholic Church has tried to give all kinds of detailed guidance in the form of all the canon law and all the all the ways that you're supposed to go through do penance and so on and so forth, so that in theory you should be able to you could just sort of consult the rule book for any question and know, okay, cool, mm-hmm. check 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 check, all right, good, you know. I pleased God today, right? And that's again, <laughs> right. that's natural human temptation. Pharisees were doing that in the time of Jesus, and we have to say no, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, so the reformers were actually saying, no, no, it's 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 fine to have actually a lot of uncertainty about how you're, you know, wake up each morning. How, how do I please God today? I'm not sure. Go to sleep each night. Did I please God today? I'm not sure, and yet I do know that because my imperfect works are accepted by faith that God is pleased with me. Right. Um, so yes. So I think pursuit of clarity, pursuit of certainty, different things. And, um, and the, the certainty that Rome promises is ultimately a elusive one. Elusive. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very, it's very, uh, shaky. It's very faulty. I mean, I, and, I mean, it's so I'm, I'm reading this other book. I don't know if you've ever read this. It's called the the Roman Catholic Theology. Sorry, Roman Catholic Theology and Practice and Evangelical Assessment by Greg Allison. It's really interesting. Oh, he kind of just yeah, puts heard of it. Yep. Yeah, it's really he's you know just a you know Catholic theology right next to evangelical theology, and I think that there is within the Catholic theological framework a lot of faulty or just blatantly unbiblical viewpoints, um, as far as I can tell. And so, so no, I, I think that you're right on that. Um, yeah, the only reason I was wondering is just cause the thing that I've, I've been kind of thinking about as it relates to this question of clarity versus certainty is that 
and and maybe this isn't the case for everybody, but a lot of the young people that I talk to oftentimes are just looking for some sort of presupposition to build their faith upon rather than an answer for every specific question. Whereas like Mm -hmm. they can get in, they can get up in the morning understanding that they, they, they subscribe to a certain set of doctrines. Maybe they don't think this every morning, but they understand this implicitly that they can, they've subscribed to a certain set of doctrines and therefore can try to proceed out of those doctrines in a way in their life that is, that is pleasing to God in, and not necessarily saying like, okay, do I give my money to this? Uh, should I give my money to this organization or should I give my money to this one? It is not necessarily an answer, a theological answer for that sort of question in giving. But if you have a theological presupposition based on biblical doctrine or confession, you might be able to make a wiser decision on the basis of what your conviction is. Um, and and I do think that sometimes Catholicism can be in a way, the Catholic doctrine can be in a way a cop out to not think through the Catholic, the Catholic theology assumes way too much theologically. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, <laughs> that seems like a little bit of a cop out to me, but um, I don't know. So I, I think that that's an interesting, an interesting dynamic there. Um, now, okay. So you talk next about being in touch with history in this section, you kind of discuss the Catholic view of history and the important significance they give to theological tradition and history. Can you break this section down a little bit um, and just kind of give an overview as to what, uh, what exactly is the holdup for Protestants as they as they think through the theological history? Yeah. So on um, the history thing, I mean, I think this is one area where uh, you know modern evangelical Protestantism is just come fallen a long way from what was going on in the Reformation, um, and and we we miss that sometimes because we say, well, it's it's all about sola scriptura. The reformers were all about sola scriptura, so they wanted to get back to just the Bible. And so that means skipping over all this church history where people, you know, get it wrong and just going back to the, the source. Uh, and so therefore we today, we don't really need to know, need to know much church history. As long as we know our Bible, that's, that's true. Study of church history is just, is just a study of how human beings have messed it up. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's not, not how the reformers thought about it. Um, to say sola scriptura meant scripture is the only finally authoritative source against which other claims must be tested, uh, but um, you, didn't, you didn't discover the meaning of Scripture just by looking at it in isolation. You, look, you discover the meaning of Scripture precisely in studying Scripture in relation to all these later interpretations, right? And then, and, and then by that, you figure out which interpretations illuminate the text and which ones pervert the text, right? Hmm. So Scripture and the later writings of the church are always to be looked at together, and the Reformers are constantly citing the church fathers, um, and and they're even and they're also citing medieval theologians, and especially as you get beyond the Reformation, um, the, the earliest decades of the Reformation, you have Protestant thinkers that become much are much more comfortable citing medieval scholastics uh, like Thomas Aquinas, and so there's the sense that the the whole history of the church is is ours to inherit and benefit from, and there's parts of it, of course, that are corrupt traditions um, and, mm-hmm. and, and bad doctrines that need to be reformed. But uh, we still need to know those. We still need to study even the parts that are bad. And there's a huge amount that's good, right? Uh, so yeah. that's how the reformers approached it. And I think um, the, you know, what we have nowadays in so much Protestantism is just a complete complete ignorance of everything after, you know, <laughs> after yeah. the Revelation 22, okay, you know, Revelation 22 skipped from that up until, you know, 
you know, John MacArthur founded his church in 1970, whatever, right? I don't know. So, um, not to pick on John MacArthur per se, right? Just to say like, you get, you get these kind of influential church founders, uh, that then create this, this network of churches. And that's the, the, that's the founding of that movement is the only church history that people know. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a sense in which, you know, we're picking on the church, we're picking on American Protestantism, but it's a larger cultural phenomenon, right? We live in a, in a society that is cut off from its history in so many ways. And there's a sense that, uh, why do we need to know history? Because we're, you know, uh, we're, we have all this technological process progress. Like we know a lot more than they did. Right. So what's Mm. the point of of looking at what they knew? Um, so yeah, so we live in an anti-historical age and I think many young people are, um, just realize how, how rootless and alone that makes you feel right. If you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. Um, and so I think that's, I see that very often is someone grows up in that non-denom evangelical church goes, does like a great books program. You know, they start reading Plato and Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas and, and they're like, wow, man, I didn't know any of this stuff. The Catholics yeah. are talking about it. We are not talking about it. I guess I need to become Catholic, right? Mm. Which is not a very, it's not a very sound <laughs> syllogism, yeah. um, yeah. but it's, it's, it makes sense. Yeah. No, and, and I always thought it was funny growing up when I would ask a theological question. I, I would ask, you know, what, whatever it was, and I would get an answer from somebody in the church, whether it's a youth group leader or a pastor or whatever. And I would always want to push as to, you know, what, well, then wh- where did you come to that conclusion? You know, there's a lot of theological, biblical questions that you can ask where people can come to a multitude of different answers that are all within the bounds of maybe traditional orthodoxy. And I, and I would ask, you know, like, okay, well, where did you come to that? Well, then they would say, well, this is, you know, essentially in some ways, like I've been convicted into this, or this is kind of my interpretation or where I've come to. And it, so it was a very personal conviction focused answer. And then I would push even further. And then the next thing they would do is start quoting historical theologians that they, you know, or not even historical. It's like, here's what John Piper said, or here's what, whatever has AJI Packer said or something like that. Or so John Owen said, and I was always like, this just seems hypocritical at the end of the day. It seems like <laughs> hypocritical for evangelical, low church evangelical, non-denominationalist to say this is we're 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 sola scriptura until we get pushed far enough to the point where we have to give you a i mean i mean it's wild it's absolutely right and richard hooker talks about this that my my favorite theologian and you know just that puritans he was interacting with in his day would do this you know like well you're just saying that on human authority we shouldn't take any human authority (laughs) scripture alone you know and then next thing you know you turn around and find them you know quoting and here's what john calvin (laughs) said in defense right so you know everybody Every human being relies on human authority. Um, we all do. And it's just a question of whether we do so thoughtfully or thoughtlessly and, and whether we are discerning about which human authorities we pay attention to, right? Mm-hmm. So the to say, you know, I'm not going to listen to human authority, just going to listen to the Bible, that really just means you're only going to listen to human authorities that – around in your lifetime because <laughs> you're going to, you're going to be listening to those anyway. Everybody is, and everyone's views are going to be shaped by those. They just don't think about it. So it's the question is not whether, but which. Yeah. And there's a, there's a real reality to Sola Scriptura that if you believe Sola Scriptura completely and thoroughly, 
you, there would really be no point for you to go to church, to small group, to Bible studies, to listen to your pastor. These are all just in some ways, just convictional or, or interpret. You're just listening to other people's interpretations, which could be contaminating to your, to your, you know, personal. And you should make sure to get a Bible without any study notes. <laughs> and in the original Greek and Hebrew, you know, don't, don't go too far to these, these translations, but, uh, no, I, I've always found that to be, uh, to be kind of a hip, hypocritical, way in which I think it's a pretty easy fix, you know, for, for evangelicals who have a really succinct, robust historical theology. I mean, there's really, really good evangelical theology. And, um, that is based on some sort of, like you're saying, human authority. And I, I think that seems like kind of an easy, I don't want to say easy fix. It's never an easy fix, but maybe would be kind of more humility focused and saying like, yeah, we, we do. I do subscribe to a Calvin, a Calvinist perspective or whatever. John Calvin, I agree with him. And so, um, no, for sure. And I want to, as we wrap up here, I want to ask, we can't go through all of the the um, the points, although I think that people should buy the book and read through all the points. Like they're really interesting. Um, but I want to kind of ask, at what as you wrapped up this book, you kind of have a, the ending section. What were your concluding thoughts and kind of your your way forward for the church and how they should the Protestant church and how they should respond to so many people kind of moving to Rome? Yeah. So. Um, I mean, I think what I what I say in the afterward um, that I think is is a kind of diagnostic framework we need to use is, um, you know, I talk about that there are uh, so we we have three chapters on three different sorts of motivations, but there's another kind of division of three that we could use and and say mm-hmm. that uh, all right, are people there are some re- there are some things that draw people that are goods that they are genuine goods that they are seeking in Rome um, that could also be found within Protestantism. And so the, these, right. the conversion is therefore needless on that ground, because if that's what you want, Hey, like we've got that too. You just haven't done your homework enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, for instance, on sacramental theology, it's one that we haven't touched yeah. on, right. There is a rich heritage of sacramental theology within Protestantism um, mm-hmm. that. I mean, yeah, not that not that there aren't some differences between Catholic and Protestant sacramental theology, but for the most part, they're really on finer points that most people aren't really even thinking about, like the exact differences between transubstantiation and and the reformed real pre, you know right. reformed real presentation, as I sort of consubstantiation, call it. But, yeah, 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 or consubstantiation, right? Uh, they're just thinking, well, you know, like Rome has a you know real objective sacramental grace and we don't well no no actually protestantism has a vision of real objective sacramental grace right um so there's real goods that people are seeking and they're just like they're um they're not look looking within their own contexts enough before concluding that rome has those answers Mm -hmm. there's some things that they are seeking things that are good in a sense, but they are—they're not real. <laughs> they're goods that aren't actually attainable within this life, right? And so that's why the sort of quest for certainty stuff kind of can fit into that, where mm-hmm. somebody is longing for a vision of truth uh, that is more truth than is actually going to be available to us in this life, mm-hmm. or or unity, right? That's something else we talk about in the book. This uh, the church is so divided, oh, yeah. um, and we really want a church where that is truly one body 
and Rome has that. But then it's like, well, no, actually, Rome doesn't have that, right? The, <laughs> there's all these divisions in Rome too, and so on. Um, so that's real. It's a it's a good, but it's not a real good, right? So there's um, mm-hmm. there's real goods that we have too. There's goods that they don't have and nobody has. And then there's things that they have uh, that we don't have, and we would say, yeah, but those aren't good. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's where you know, for instance, some of the stuff we were talking about with um, the the holiness deficit disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Where there is this desire to, you know, I mean, for instance, the prayer to the saints, right? It's this, mm-hmm. um, I can understand why somebody would want that, that sense <laughs> of, you know, again, there's this, like the part of the mystery, you ask them, well, how is that possible? How does this, how is it, what are the actual mechanics by which the saint hears your prayers and or something like that? And it's sort of like, well, this is this mystery and, and the mystery is kind of part of the point of it, right? But it's also this sense of, of continuity. Like uh, I, I want to feel really connected to the, the um, hmm. you know, these, the church of the past, the past and, and yeah. the idea that this really, this really holy person is praying for me. You know, it's very comfortable. I mean, like, again, like I can, I can say, yeah, that makes sense why you would want that. I just think, it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. It also just seems right? arrogant and it, and it pulls us away from Christ. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think, you know, that's what I want to kind of sort through and say, there are, there are reasons for conversion, good reasons. They're good, good things, but you don't need to convert mm-hmm. to get that. So just study your own sure. heritage better. There's things sure. that I understand why you want that, but uh, you need to like, they, nobody has that. And there's things that they have that, but here's why Protestants have historically said it's wrong and I, and why we still need to say it's wrong. Um, and Mm so I think we need to, um, you know, be willing to, on the one hand, you know, pastorally, and if you're, if you're counseling or, or, or friends with someone who's going through this is you need to not pull the punches on some of the stuff you need to say, you know, look, Rome is in error and, this is, this is, this could be dangerous to your soul, um, which is an unpopular, you know, this, that's judgmental. We're not supposed to be judgmental nowadays. Uh, but I think you can also be very, um, uh, you know, winsome in saying, look, I, I totally understand why you'd be drawn to that. I struggle with that itch too. Um, mm-hmm. But here's how I think actually Protestants historically have scratched that itch and it's a, and it's a, more ultimately a more satisfying and faithful way of doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's that's all obviously really helpful. And I, I mean, we didn't, yeah, we didn't get to the to the conversation of of being tired of division. And I that that is one that you hear all the time. It's like, and what I mean, what I hear when I people say they're tired of division, I just hear the whole, whole like, why can't everybody get along thing? Um, you know, I, you got to view that like marriage, where if you know Jordan Peterson talks about. Uh, Divorce is just 10,000 arguments that never happened, uh, basically, that are all culminating in this one passive, cowardly act of divorce. And so the the idea that a, a group of people aren't going to argue and have differentiations and distinctions is just wildly outside uh, a, a, a comprehensive view of human nature. I think it's just very ignorant at, at the end but man, there's so many good points i wish we could just keep talking but i do i you got to get going here and it's uh no problem i do want to say thanks for coming on the podcast and um this is an interesting conversation i think people should should get this book uh why do protestants convert and just read through it because i do i do see 
this continuing. I think more young people are going to continue to try to go to Rome. And if Protestants don't have good answers or good understanding of what's happening, I think it, it's, we're going to ha- have a lot of people go uh, towards a theological conviction that might not be good, well, you know, depending on how you look at it. So, um, so thanks for coming on, Brad. Uh, I don't know if you have any final things you want to say, but thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cool. And if you're listening to this you like, and you like this podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.